Well, let's turn our hearts and seek the Lord. Our glorious King, we add our voices to the hymn that we've just sung, that you are an eternally pure being. You are undiluted light. You are holiness in every way, separate from us, essentially. You are the only uncreated being. Everything else, from the angel to the, to the least insect, is in the category of created. And there is an infinite gulf between us and you. But you are also the only morally perfect being whose perfections come from within himself. You are holiness itself. You are what is righteousness. And so we come to you, God, not because we're good people this morning, but because we have seen through your word and you've opened our eyes to feel the weight of those words that we are a people who need rescuing. None of our religion, none of our morality, none of our avoiding the truths of the Bible in any way. None of these were able to scrub up the inside of our lives. No matter what changes we made on the outside, we were still the same, same basic person, the same kind of husband or wife, the same parent or child or friend. But, oh God, you have provided as our triune God such a perfect redemption. Every possible spiritual need has been met in Christ. We thank you that you have sent your spirit to this world which murdered the Messiah and you have brought to us new life in him, uniting us to him, daily sustaining us from him. God, we pray that today the great work of your son and the spread of his kingdom his name exalted, His will being done. God, we pray that You would stretch out Your arm and cause it to flourish. Thank You that on the first day of this week, we're allowed to be a part of that. That it's not just fine concepts, but there's a very definite path, a very definite intimacy with the living God as we walk in harmony with You. So we ask that as a church, as individuals, we ask on behalf of every believer as this world turns before your face today. God, meet us in Christ. Meet us at the throne of mercy, at the living mercy seat at your right hand. He is our treasure, but he is your treasure as well. So we pray that you would not let us have indifferent responses and cold, sluggish hearts, not when we have him, not when he's the great offering in the gospel. Father, we pray for those who are isolated so often by sickness, sometimes misunderstood by other believers, but you know their needs. We think of Casey and Greg. We, we think of Greg Elder there are so many more. God, the molars, those that face serious health issues. And when we forget them, you don't. We pray for Kelly and Max and 
We're thankful for the beautiful wedding this weekend, and we ask that each day you would graciously awaken them, open their ears, remind them of the realities that don't change with all the fluctuations in marriage. You are still everything, all in all, the chief of 10,000. God, we pray that you would grant us such childlike confidence, such a sight of Christ, that it would be our delight today. We don't even ask for tomorrow, but today that we might cheerfully offer ourselves afresh to you. We ask it for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll read actually chapter 11 down through chapter 12, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. And became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien or a stranger in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. 
And indeed, if they had been seeking, uh, thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, it's a wonderful passage, and it has in it uh, a short couple of verses that I want us to look at today. We've been looking at the theme of following Christ, and following Christ as a disciple, or being discipled by Christ today. If we think of the early early chapters of the New Testament and the Gospels, where Christ um, be, you know, enters into his public ministry, one of the most fundamental descriptions of a Christian life surely could have been that they are followers of Christ. They come to Christ and the command is given, follow me. And there is no time in the Christian calendar, there, there is no place in the New Testament epistles where we're told that that actually is no longer the fundamental, you know, the heart of Christianity. You can imagine how inappropriate it would have been in the early days of Christianity for Christ to pass by people like Matthew, who was at work, and to say to him, follow me, and for Matthew to have responded, I promise I will, I will study and accept all those doctrines that you teach, or I will I'll go home and I'll live a better life. I'll follow your ethics. Certainly there are doctrines in the Christian life that are essential and there are commands and duties that are essential not only for us as individuals but for us as a part of a body of Christ. But all of that really is summed up in that simple statement. Follow me. Repentance is there. Belief is there. Daily trust is there. Submission is there. Love and hope is there. Every doctrine is kept in its right place when we see it as understanding this doctrine is part of loving and sticking close to this Christ. And every duty is kept from legalism when we consider that this is a duty that is part of following a person. Having a person the person at the heart of your Christianity is one of the sweetest realities that can grip us. It's not just doctrines and it's not just duties. It's not just ceremonies and it's not just the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. It is that we have been brought to God through a person. This morning, I want us to look at the activity of faith, and we've been considering that in the past weeks. Faith is the tool, the instrument by which God giving it to us, we are enabled moment by moment, day by day, to look at Christ, having been placed in Christ, united to him as our life. We look to him in a real dependence. We bring him 
all that he says about himself, all that he says about our rescue, and we bring it back to him and say, I don't have anyone else to supply this Christian life. So I am living in the confidence that you are who you say you are, and you will do all that you say you will do. So faith draws or receives from Christ what we need hour by hour. But the other activity of faith that we talked about a number of weeks ago is that faith allows us to be in the grip of what God reveals because faith is certainly not just a hopeful attitude. Faith is believing what God says that this is what's real and Anything that contradicts that, no matter how real it appears, it is not real. And so we are able, by faith, to live on what God says and to risk everything, even if in some moments of the Christian life, all we have to go on is what God says. And Hebrews 11 gives us a picture of that, where by faith, these people continue their entire life to live on what God said, no matter how costly. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, both of these activities of faith come together and Christ is at the center of it. So I think that before we move forward with our series on following Christ, where we look at the particular path of Christ, the commands of God, I want us to look at this popular, well-known passage, and kind of slow down and just look at the simple and uh, clear helps it gives. So simple that it'd be easy every day to wake up and just kind of run through the few things. In chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're going to find that we have a reason for continuing to press on as Christians, and then we have directions, negative directions, If you're going to run the race, if you're going to really follow Christ and not slacken the pace, then there there are things you cannot take with you. And if you are going to run the race and really follow Christ and not slacken your pace, then there is a focus that you have to maintain. Negative things, positive things in running the race. So let's look at that today and just kind of slow down and pull this apart. In verses 1 and 2, I want us to consider the context. Remember that the book of Hebrews is primarily written at that time to Jewish believers who, because they have embraced the Messiah, they have lost everything. And life is difficult. You can read in chapter 13 where it talks about how they, you know, people have, because of their embracing Christ, they've not just lost relationships, they've lost, they've, they've lost things, possessions, they've been thrown into prison. This is written before Rome really, as, a, as an empire, turns up the heat on Christians. The early decades of persecution were not primarily from the Romans, but from the Jews, So you're a Jew and you've embraced this Jesus who has been shamefully crucified by the instigation of your denominational leaders and you lose everything. And you look at Judaism and Judaism still 
has all the kind of the glamour of a respectable age-old religion. There's a beautiful temple. There are all these beautiful ceremonies. You know, there's a certain respectability, at least within the Jewish community that you live in. And now you don't even have that. And Christianity, Paul says, we early Christians, we're the off-scourings of the earth. How can you not despair? How do you not lose that, that captivation with Christ that makes you stretch and to yearn and to push yourself all the way to the end running this race of following Christ? How do you not slacken the pace? How do you not get distracted? How do you not drift? How do you not even turn back? And so the writer of Hebrews gives them a, a one-two punch, all right? There, there are pictures of Christ that show him to be so superior to anything the old covenant provided. And yet he is what the old covenant was talking about. And therefore, the privileges of the new covenant are superior to anything that any Jew in the old covenant enjoyed. That it would be foolish to turn back from the, this treasure that God has provided to the emptiness of an old covenant that has divorced itself from its fulfillment. The other punch is the warnings. And those are quite shocking, purposefully. And basically it says, do not let yourself give in to the temptation to drift from Christ. There is no other hope. Well, I think that this is a particularly helpful passage uh, or book as a whole for us because we find that even as believers, even though we're not Jewish and you are not suffering to the degree that the Jewish believers did when this was written, the older we get as believers, the, the more often there is that temptation to say that this is a good place to kind of um, put it in neutral and coast down the hill. And, you know, we just wait for Christ to come get us. It is easy when you're a younger Christian in the, in the early days of having your eyes open to everything that you missed before, it's just like a market day for the soul, the Puritan said. But I think if they lived in our day, they would say, like, it's a kid in a candy store. You know, it's just everything that you could want. And you become accustomed to that. It's human nature. And things can be disappointing and life can be difficult and heartbreaking because you do love Christ. And so you do love other people. And things bother you that don't bother a lost person. And it's very tempting to believe the lie that it's okay to pull back the pace. There are different ways to run a race depending on, you know, what your goal is. When Catherine, our daughter, was running in um, the college meets for, um, for cross country, it, it would, you know, cross country is not everybody's cup of tea. It's, you know, I think it's just torture, but, but cross country people like it, but in these races, college groups would get together. And so there would be maybe 150 runners at a meet. And there would, without fail, there would be about 10%. So 15, 
were there for different reasons than the rest of the kids. Most of the kids were there because they, cross country was their sport and they wanted either to place better than they did last time or they wanted to place, you know, closer to the front so that their team would have more points and the whole team would win. But that 10%, that 15 out of 150, those were kids that cross country was not their sport, but their sport was another sport like basketball, which would follow. And so basketball players were forced by their coaches to run cross country to keep them in shape so that when basketball season comes around, that they wouldn't have to spend so much time, you know, getting them back in shape. You could always tell those because they came in as kind of stragglers, not just at the end of a big group, but there would be a long gap. So in a 5K with girls, some would come in in 17 minutes, some 18, and then you get the 19 and 20s and, and throughout the 20s. But then there would be this long break. And I would think, well, um, isn't the race over? 41 minutes. Here comes a girl jogging a little, walking a little. Jogging a little, walking a little. And then there's another girl behind her and another behind her. That wasn't their sport. They hated the cross country. And when running hurt, since they weren't really planning on winning or being a part of a winning team, they stopped and just took it easy. There are ways of running the Christian life. You're on the same path that other runners are on. You're going through the same basic physical motions, you know, like that, like those girls that were coming in 20 minutes later, they had to make the same repetitive motions that all the winners did. But there's no heart in it. There's no yearning. There's no pressing through pain. Catherine was um, an adolescent epileptic, some of you know, and so for her to run through her junior high and high school years, I had to run with her. And then when she ran races, I had to run with her. And I ran with her medicine with me in a little strap. And so I, I was not in good shape like Catherine. And especially when we got into high school and she would run these races, these road races, um, they would say, go. And everybody takes off and Catherine shoots out, you know, in the front pack. And I have to shoot out in the front pack. And I do not kid you. I remember one time at Blue Mountain in particular, running those hills, the first quarter mile, my right arm goes numb. And then I'm sure I'm a goner. Like, well, who's going to give her medicine when I'm dying? Because I'll just have this heart attack here in the first quarter mile. So I would be running, shaking this arm and asking God, can you would you keep me alive until after the finish line so that like if I die, she doesn't have this epileptic fit and nobody knows what's happening. And I ran as hard as I could to keep Catherine in sight so I could see if she passed out. I ran so hard, that Blue Mountain race in particular, to keep her in sight. She was like 50 yards ahead of me. I ran so hard from the first step that to keep her in sight, that in the last quarter mile, I started blacking out. I started like everything started going black and then I'd shake my head and I think, oh, no, 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 it's not time to do this. Like, why? Do you know I've never run any other races like that? I jog along and if I get to hurting too bad and there's not too many spectators, I stop and walk. 
And then when the crowd, you, you, know, you turn a corner and there's the crowd, oh, then I start running again. There are very different ways to run the race. So spiritually, let me just ask, how are you running it? When it hurts and it costs in ways that you may never have expected it to cost, are you pulling back? Or are you keeping your eyes on Christ in a way that enables you to keep the pace? It's not enough for the Christian not to turn back. We want to run in a way that shows the entire world that he's worth it. Well, that's the context of the book. The content, simple. There's a reason to run well. There's a group of witnesses that surround us. And as I mentioned, there are directions for how to run well, laying aside certain things and focusing on a certain person. So let's look at that. The reason to run well. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us. There are so many things that could motivate the Christian to pick up the pace. But here, he mentions this great cloud of witnesses. He's really talking about chapter 11 and everyone else that could be included. Every believer that's gone before us. It can mean that the believers who have gone before us, each generation, in a sense, passing the baton to the next generation. And with Christ now, the Old Testament believers, the the 2,000 years of believers that have come between us and the writing of Hebrews, that they are in some measure aware of the unfolding of Christ's kingdom. I, I don't think that, you know, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been watching me this morning And they're all focused on me. I mean, God is infinite and aware of all of us, but they're not infinite. But it can mean, you know, in the sense of Ephesians 3, that as the kingdom unfolds, as the gospel covers the earth, as men and women and children are conquered by the God that they wanted to avoid at all costs, that those inhabitants of heaven are aware of how the baton is being carried in our generation. And of course, the end of chapter 11 says that amazing thing that the Old Testament saints, as wonderfully as they ran, they did not receive everything they were hoping for, not yet, because they are waiting for every other believer to finish their race. And at the end, when in a sense, when the last believers come in and Christ comes and there's this, there's this transformation, glorification, He is glorified in front of everyone. The church is glorified. The work of transformation is complete. No more sin ever again between you and your Savior. At that moment, every Old Testament saint, every New Testament saint, you and everyone that's yet to come, made complete. So maybe it is that they are witnesses in that way, yearning to see the kingdom spread, aware of the display of the manifold wisdom of God like the heavenly beings are. But there is probably a a primary emphasis that is not that. And that that is that the saints of chapter 11 and every other saint that's finished the course, that they form a great cloud, a great company, a gallery of witnesses surrounding us every day of our Christian life. 
But they are not witnessing us as much as they are witnessing to us that they are bringing us an eyewitness testimony. Chapter 11, the focus is not that they're waiting to watch us, but the saints in chapter 11, the focus is this, that by their lives, they declare to us, they bring us a a witness, an eyewitness, a testimony. And the testimony is this, he can be trusted. And if you live your entire life following his word and not all occurs or not all is given that you've waited to see, you can trust him all the way to the end. So as you're living the Christian life, you have a great company. Every believer that's finished his race or her race, if they could speak to you, and they do in scripture, you have every one of them to say to you, look, we're here to bear eyewitness testimony. We have been where you've been. And in every one of the circumstances that you are facing, so varied, he can be trusted to keep his word. That's why the Christian has no excuse for pulling back the pace or drifting off the course of obedience when it's difficult because you fear maybe God won't be as good as he says. Now, I know that sometimes we as Christians don't always give the right eyewitness testimony toward each other. It is easy to come together at church and to lick our wounds. If you go to a conference of preachers, they're much worse. So, you know, I won't scold you, scold them, but they get together and they say, how's it going? Oh, they say, oh, and they tell the woes of their church. And then the next guy one-ups them. Oh, you think that's a bad deacon? That's a bad elder? Let me tell you this. And it is easy to become forgetful of the great realities that surround us and to, to waste our time with each other talking about how hard life is on us. Asaph in the Old Testament, a very godly psalmist, in Psalm 73, he talks about the fact that he looks at the world and he's confused. The world looks like it has it easy. And then he looks at the believer and the believer has it hard. And it's been going on for a long time and Asaph has been really feeling it. And he is about to complain that the life of a believer kind of stinks. And then he says, I almost, I almost sinned against the Lord in that way. But then I came into the sanctuary, you know, and I saw him again. I was made aware of God again in worship and seeing God just clears the perspective of Asaph. And at the end of this, this, this helpful psalm where this believer almost says, well, the Christian life just stinks or the believer's life is, is rotten. He ends up by saying this, whom have I in heaven but you, God? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. I run out of energy and I run out of, you know, hopefulness. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, 
Now, it means something for Asaph to say this. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. How different than in the middle of the psalm. So there are seasons in the Christian life where you can listen to another Christian and they are careless and they misrepresent. They're just giving you how they feel in the moment and you have to be prepared for that. It shouldn't happen, but it does. But if you ask a believer who has completed the race, that cloud of witnesses does not disagree. Every one of them will tell you he can be trusted to keep his word. Now let's look at the directions for the runners. First, things that you cannot take. Think of competitive runners versus joggers, right? I'm not a competitive runner. I've never been a competitive runner. I told you about the issues with Catherine. But other than that, I don't mind what time I come in. If I jog, I just jog to unwind. So I, I might take a camel pack. You know what those are. It's a backpack with water in it. So I'm jogging along and I could carry an extra few pounds. But have you ever seen a competitive runner sprint with a camel pack? If I were to ever run a marathon, which I have not, and I've been greatly discouraged to run marathons because I saw that Oprah Winfrey ran a marathon. And now my pride will not be puffed up if I did as well as Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I feel that she just lowered the bar. Now I don't want to hurt that bad. But if I ran a marathon, there's a list of things I'd like to have. I would like to have an iPad, maybe something that mounts right here so that in all those horribly boring hours of pain, I could watch something that would distract me. I would like to have a phone to call and complain to Misty about how terrible this hurts. I would like to have the camel pack. I I would like to have a a bag of popcorners, my new favoritist snack. But I've never seen any competitive runner carry any of those. I'd I know why. You know why. It just slows you down. There are things in the Christian life which you cannot carry with you if you are going to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible sums a lot of them up in the word self. So, not Luke 9, 23. Do you remember the passage? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must Notice the words, anyone and must. There there are no exceptions. Anyone who is wanting to follow Jesus of Nazareth must. This goes for everyone. He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one that will save it. You cannot take self. As a companion, you cannot give self a piggyback ride and run the race that Christ has called you to run. You cannot run this race with all the variations of self that you lived with before you came to Christ. They get in the way. They slow you down. They make it so you can't see him. Think of things like this. Self-centeredness. Well, that was as natural to us as breathing. Self-promotion. Self-rule. I have the right to do what I think's right in this situation. I don't have to consult the word of God. Self-confidence. 
And the hardest one to shake off your back if you're going to follow Christ, self-righteousness. It's hard to even see. There is a way of focusing on ourselves in Christianity that becomes unbalanced, where we look at us and we think, okay, well, what does God think of me right now? Okay, now, but now, but what about right now? And how am I doing right now? There are times where you have, where the scripture becomes a mirror of your soul and you need to be honest, but it should be a window far more often where we see him. You can become so self-focused that Christianity really is nothing more than you trying to use God to make a better you. It's, it's no different than the life before. It's still self. And it still has to be put to death. Think of Romans 8. Paul says, when it comes to following Christ, the Spirit helps us. And he says, but what about the old life? You owe the old life no recognition. Every old form of self-centeredness. You have the right, belonging to Christ and living in the realm of grace, to say to those old ways of living, I don't even recognize you anymore. I owe you nothing. And every way that self wants to run alongside you in the race to follow Jesus, you will have to put it to death. Just think how simple it is. How far are you going to go in Christ-likeness if self-centeredness goes with you? How far if self-promotion goes with you? If self-rule goes with you? Self-confidence and self-righteousness. And these are just a short list. How far will you live for Christ in a church setting if these are your companions and you're okay with it? What about in your home? I mean, this, that's where they show up most. There are sinful things that we have to put away. He says it in Hebrews 12. The sins that so easily entangle us. The things that for you so easily wrap themselves around your ankles and you are stuck until you repent. Until by grace you kill them again today. You can feel you're moving forward. You can cheer for the other Christians that are moving forward. You can coach people who are moving forward. These 5K races that Catherine would run, you could always spot the parents, including Misty Snyder, but not me. I was innocent in this one. They are screaming maniacs, and they scream all kinds of coaching hints as the kids pass by. Come on, you can pass her. She's tired. Come on. And I'm like, I, so I scoot away from the yelling parents because it, it bugs me. And so Misty says, why aren't you yelling? I'm like, because it's embarrassing. You're yelling like a crazy woman. And Catherine already has a coach. And she goes to, she gets coached every day, year after year. And you think that you yelling that you can catch that next girl is like that. That's going to make it work. And so I'm going to go stand over by the quiet people. You can coach other Christians. You can counsel people. They can come to you and say, I don't know what to do. And you have all the right answers. But your feet aren't moving in obedience to Christ because of the sin of self that you won't crucify. Then there are other things, he says. There are those things that weigh us down, encumbrances. And these things aren't necessarily sinful. And these 
are hard to see. Usually, I think the best way to see it is as you really try to follow Christ, you will find there will be a list that starts to form if you are willing to be honest. And these are things that continue to kind of hamper you. So you might say it this way. I think I would really know Christ better or I would follow Christ more closely if I if this were different. And there's your list. Things that in themselves are not bad. Many of these things, I would think, are gifts from God. And they're to be enjoyed. And we're to be grateful. And we're not talking about becoming monks and nuns and trying to hide ourselves from this world in that way. But these gifts have become your treasure, not the giver. And so they begin to absorb all your thoughts and your time and your resources are devoted to them. And at first, it, it just seems, you know, innocent. But then as the months go by or as the years go by, you realize that I'm devoting things that I once devoted to God, the time, study, reaching out to other people. And I'm just doing the bare minimum now because all the rest is devoted to these things. And they become the weights that slow you down. Activities, hobbies, entertainment, recreation. Amy Carmichael, the missionary in India, wrote to the other missionaries when they were asking her, like, what about recreation? So should a Christian ever have rest and, recre rest and relaxation? Should you have recreation? And she said, certainly, quoting one of the Puritans, the bow does not remain strung all the time. You know, old wooden bows. You have to unstring them. You don't store them strung. That's probably not our big problem as Americans. The problem is we can't get the string, we can't get the bow strung, you know. It's, it's always unstrung. But sometimes we do get in the rut of thinking, well, okay, if I'm really going to follow Christ, then that means no relaxation, no recreation, no rest. Amy Carmichael said this, a good guide is this. Does your relaxation or recreation, does it cause you to slip back in power and intimacy with God? In other words, at the end of the movie you just watched, do you feel that you're two steps back from where you were before you watched the movie? You know, it's not the question of, well, what was it rated or how many words did I hear or what did it actually show anything? I mean, those are not the right questions. Did, am I further back after this entertainment, after this activity, after this hobby? Have I lost spiritual ground? Am I as near or nearer to Christ as I was before I did this? Things that weigh us down. Relationships, that's probably the number one thing for most of us. Things, friendships that we think this will complete me and make me happy. And it's not that there's anything wrong with the friendship in itself. It's just that you have made it your treasure. And now everything is being funneled into the friendship. And you tell yourself, I'll get back to Christ. Psalm 119, a great prayer, verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. It's not sin, it's just, it's just emptiness. And revive me in your ways. 
Now, I think it would be good maybe to just make a couple of general observations. And so if you feel like I'm talking about you in particular, I'm not, and I am, because this fits all of us, okay? I have noticed in my own soul, and certainly it's obvious in the church over the last 23 years, as we're not all young anymore, that in the seasons of life, there are different temptations which come alongside the believer as we run the race. And you have to be aware of them or they kind of sneak up on us and we don't notice that they start to steal and distract and cause us to drift. So in the early season of life, when you're young and single, and maybe you've just embraced Christ, it's easy to think that, you know, I'm a Christian now, but for really seriously being a part of the kingdom of Christ, for having real, any real impact, I have to be more of a grown-up. I mean, I'm only in my teens, or maybe I'm in my 20s, and so when I finish all my education, and I get married, and I settle down, then, then I can have a meaningful part in the kingdom. Then I can have a meaningful service in the church. But that's a lie. And it's easy to waste a decade thinking when I'm grown up. I mean, I tell Misty, I do plan to grow up one day, but I don't feel grown up yet. I know that you agree with that. But anyway, it's easy to waste those years. But think about the next season. Maybe you get married, you're a young couple, and you know, this is something that you've looked forward to, and now you're in love, and you're together, and maybe the Lord adds children, and it is so easy in the everyday things of the new family to neglect the church, to neglect other people, and you, you can become self-absorbed with your little unit, and you're satisfied. This is what I wanted. I'm happy. I'm content. But there are so many people around you you used to think about. Why not now? Maybe when children are growing and they reach, you know, those junior high years and they're not driving yet, but they're involved in a lot of things. And it is easy to find your life just completely absorbed in the busyness of young people, always on the run tempted to devote all extra resources, things that once were devoted to the Lord, now they're devoted to getting the kids to the next thing they do. And these are not sinful things, but they become things if we're not careful. You know, if we don't draw a line from love to Christ and love to our children, then we end up just pouring out our lives into the kids, thinking that would be the most Christian thing to do. But then we find that our pace in Christianity has kind of gone into neutral. Then there's the season of life when your children leave the house and you're in midlife. And it's easy for you to look around and think, well, life really wasn't everything I thought it would be. And this kind of a sense of dissatisfaction. And, and then covetousness creeps in. You have money at this stage in life to do what you want to do. You know, the kids aren't constantly draining your bank account. And so you can just kind of become self-absorbed in that way. 
What happens when you are past that? You're in the retirement age. So tempting to think that, that any real progress in Christ-likeness, once I've hit this age, it's not going to happen. I've gone as far as I'm going to go. Or any need for you in the church. Well, there's no more of that. There's young people to do the work. There's young people to teach. There's young people to serve. You are becoming physically limited. You can't do what you used to do. And it's easy to feel that that's a time to go into neutral. But really, you do see that it's the same lie repackaged each season of life. It's that this is all about us. And whatever you want, whatever is essential to your happiness at this stage in life, well, God understands that you would pursue him. You would run better. You would be more thoughtful of other believers. But you have things to do. Laying aside things that are nice and not sinful, but things that are weighing you down and distracting you, is just as important as laying aside things that are shamefully sinful. I don't know that I've ever seen a race where a group of people were running with extra weight, but I know that I've never seen a race where people were running with extra weight of their favorite but most shameful sins. Nobody runs a race carrying what they are most ashamed of for everybody to see. It's easy as a Christian to say, well, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, and I don't do this anymore. But what about the nice things that have become hurdles and weights that have entangled you? Well, the, the last thing is, he says, we run looking to Jesus. And we have been talking about this for a few months, so we will not give it the time we normally would. But it is a look of faith. That is, it is the whole of your soul that is involved. Just hearing a few facts about Christ or reading a book about Christ or, or doing a study on Christ, is, that's not enough. That doesn't change anything if the, the soul is not engaged. What is our soul? It's our mind, our heart, our will. We talked about experiential faith a few weeks ago. Where does it start? It starts with the mind. That is important. There's a very definite order, the way God has designed us. And you can't skip the order and arrive at the same place. In other words, if your heart is somewhat cold and your pace is slow, and you see that, and you say, well, I'm going to do something about that. You cannot wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to love Christ better. Doesn't work that way. You can't start with willpower. I'm going to jump on the train of willpower and I'm just going to do it better. God has designed you so that faith grabs hold of things that change the way we think and desire and choose. But it starts with facts. If you're going to look unto Jesus, give serious, earnest study in your Bibles to those passages which so clearly reveal him. Don't always let someone else dig the well and bring you the cup of water. We appreciate the, the writers that have gone before us. The old authors especially are helpful. We appreciate podcasts or sermons 
we appreciate teachers in a church, but that is not the heart of your Christianity. The heart of Christianity is you and an open book and the living God. And by the Spirit's enabling, you get it. And he gets you, but it is hard work and a lifetime of it to continue to gather these truths about your Lord. Infinite deity united to humanity to rescue you, to bring all of this to completion so that all the universe is brought under his rule. There's so much to be looked at. Why not determine to get to know Jesus of Nazareth better than you know any other person on earth? But that means study. It's not just the intellect, though. As you're gathering those facts, then the heart approves. It loves what it's learning about Christ. And so it's, it's greedy. It grabs it up. It writes it in notebooks or in a computer file and you know you you grab hold of everything that you found helpful in knowing Christ you memorize things and you meditate meditation is just when your brain goes on what your heart is glad to go to you just go back and back and back again and look at it from another angle but you can't stop there then the will i will find the areas in life that these facts about Christ, which I love and think about, I will find the areas that they plug into. And I will change. I will obey. Prayer is really the indispensable element in that. Looking to Jesus. Seeing the realities. Loving the realities. Finding practical application of the realities. All of it done, really, in prayer, in the sense that you go to God over and over and just talk to him and say, this is your son that I'm learning about, and you delight to exalt him, and the spirit was sent to help us to understand and to live on him. I need to know what this means. Maybe you don't have a big library. There are good books that help, but the more important thing is that your humble heart is determined to go to God again and say, so teach me, what does this mean? And you compare passage with passage and you begin to piece together the big picture and God makes those truths effective. It makes such a difference when Christ is at the heart of our Christianity. You can believe the same doctrines as a person sitting next to you, two people. They both believe the same doctrines. They both quote the same old writers. They both believe the same confession of faith. And one person does it because that's what my church believes. And that's the only way that this fits together. It makes sense. It's biblical. And another person says, yes, but it's also, it's him. It's his truth. And for love of the king, I love our confession. For, for love of the king, I love this doctrine. Two different churches, side by side, same doctrines, same choices, same, same activities, same worship style, two totally different flavors. One of them says, we do this because that's what our people do, you know. 
we're Reformed Baptist, we're Presbyterian, whatever you are, and that's what we do. That's our tradition. It's a good tradition. It's, his, it's, an, it's a historical tradition. It's a biblical tradition, yes. And then you go to the next church, same thing. Why you do this? Well, because of him. Loving him brought us to these things. Loving him brings me back to these things. Totally different ethos. Let me close with this one thing. It is such a distinguishing command of God. In Hebrews 12, when he says, lay aside the weights and the sin and look at him. Look at him. Focus on him. Run watching him. His pattern. His words. His provision. All of your hope in the race is on is in that man, the God-man. An unbelieving church attender will do so much in religion. They'll give, they'll work, they'll agree, they'll read, they may even talk and join in. Unbelieving preachers have filled Christian history. But they will not lay aside nice things, to have more of Christ, and they will not focus their hungriest parts of their soul on Christ. It'll be something else. Maybe Christianish, but not Christ. They cannot understand why someone would constantly focus on Christ. I'm already saved, I'm not going to go to hell. Why such a preoccupation? Such a clear picture of who is and who isn't a believer. So which are you? Do you see, even if you have to confess your slow pace, do you see the beauty of the command to lay aside good things so you can have more of the best thing and the best thing is a person? What a picture of the depth of our sin that we would prefer to fill up on styrofoam rather than on reality. That we would trade the diamonds of Christ and all that he is for marbles of religion on Sunday. But if you find yourself seemingly stuck there, what do you do? Why not cry out to the same Christ that you seem to be indifferent toward and find yourself surprised that he delights to meet indifferent people and to open their eyes so that you see finally why he is such a big deal to Christians. And he shows you things about yourself and then things about himself that you can never recover from. And you become a captive of this king, living with him, for him, by him, to the end of the race. Well, may the Lord help us do the same. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.